Welcome to this week's Hotel Analyst podcast, where, as usual, you find the pair of us discussing three matters of interest that we've spotted from around the operational real estate and hotel marketplace in the last week or so. Uh, my name is Chris Bowne. I'm the editor of Hotel Analyst, and I'm joined by Andrew Sankster, the editorial director of Hotel Analyst, to discuss these three topics and the first topic up for discussion is the holiday park marketplace which seems to be uh, seeing a lot of consolidation activity as uh, a number of private equity investors uh, either in the space uh, are looking to further accelerate their uh, investment um, there are some lower level uh, private equity investors getting out of the space but there's plenty more uh, others ready to take on the reins and pick things up in a sector that they've now decided is something they really rather like. So the obviously the holiday park market had a, a, a good summer last summer in Europe um, after being locked down for certain periods of it and they are looking forward to a very good year this year with lots of staycation business in the UK, in, the, in Germany, Holland and, uh, and France. So what makes this sector really appealing is that uh, there are obviously there's a bet on long term on on more and more localized uh, vacationing as people perhaps are persuaded not to jump into a plane and travel to the med but rather hop into their car and discover places closer to home so there's a hope that this uh, element of what's been enforced during the pandemic will remain a, a, a trend that consumers will continue to stick with um, there's also been the opportunity to pick up sites because uh, in the last year some of the smaller family owners have perhaps found the going a bit tough the whole business of having to deal with pandemic restrictions and then put health and safety issues in place and all that kind of stuff has perhaps meant one or two of them have thought to themselves well we had we had a very good run uh, perhaps it's time to get out and retire and uh, hey presto coming over the hill you've got a private equity investor ready to offer you some good money because they see a bright future in this space and of course one of the big bonuses is that uh, a lot of these um, holiday parks are fairly asset light in hotel terms in that the individual units on the sites are often sold to private individual investors um, which means that you've got a great management business without having to put in a large amount of capital to uh, to build them out so all set fair and uh we're hearing news that even in the UK there are several more deals uh, in the offing uh, just as the the guys in the Netherlands who took on Roompot KKR are doing well with uh, growing their portfolio there and of course the um, uh, Platinum Capital who bought the Wyndham uh, holiday businesses are continuing to grow theirs as well uh, in Europe. It looks like a sector where there's going to be quite a bit more activity to come Andrew. Indeed, and I think we're beginning to see some of that with the latest rumours um, swirling around about park holidays perhaps um, coming to the market towards the end of this year, a major deal which will be pushing towards the £1 billion um, in value. Um, we had some uh, presentation on the holiday park sector at our hotel alternatives event, um, a conference what, a couple of years ago, um, and it, that, that looks very exciting sector when you start looking at your, your yields. I mean, IRRs were in excess of forty percent on the two deals that were used as a case study in in that presentation. So it's not surprising that that has attracted the attention of uh, private equity, given that the you know that that the size 
size of those returns. Um, the issue has been uh, about scale and about liquidity. Um, simply not very many deals um, out there and this is it, it's not a market that's very well understood I mean I, I did some digging just to try and get a, a handle on just how big it is and uh, I, I dug up something which was called uh, from the UK Caravan and Camping Alliance and it was called <laughs> Pitching the Value oh, um, see what so they did there. A couple, yeah a couple of years old report but it could give you a rough feel for the size of the market in the UK at least so you're talking about in in terms of holiday park numbers more than 6,000 um, and in terms of pitches um, which I guess would be the equivalent of say rooms um, although uh, oh, units yes, yeah. units yeah. units yeah, yeah. Um, uh, 400 and over 400,000 438,000 um specifically um so that's what against well, Whitbread reckon there's about 710,000 hotel rooms in the UK so that gives you uh, an idea of the scale I mean obviously these pitches there most of them aren't used during the winter months some are but most aren't um so they're not directly comparable but it's still a you know a pretty darn sizable market but as you dig into this report you discover the liquidity issue which is uh, two-thirds of these parks they've been owned for more than 10 years and a third for more than 25 years so they just don't transact that often and they're uh, typically privately held and quite fragmented um, but we're beginning to see some um, um, institutional money coming into the market which I think is is changing it uh, one thing I don't think is going to last is this uh, you know super boom we're having um, <laughs> at the moment in the staycation market in northern Europe I mean that is because people can't get on an airplane yeah um, and you know we'll it will be a little bit sticky but I don't think it will be that sticky um, and so really if, you, if you're looking to sell now's a darn good time to be selling because your numbers are going to be looking fabulous for the next year or so so I, I that's a big push I think in terms of you know why people want to transact but also I think you know we we are seeing um, some shift in the market I think a, a long time a long-term driver for the market is this um, convergence with the broader accommodation sector so people are um, you know as they get put on websites as you can it makes it more accessible to book these places people are using them for short-term accommodation um, you know I, I, I've got a, a friend who goes down to the boat show in uh, is it Southampton I'm not much of a yachty but um, <laughs> wherever the big British boat show is um, and uh, he, he used to stay in a caravan park um, because that was the most economical place to stay on the on Britain's south coast and you know put him near enough to to rock up each morning for the for the boat show mm. um so you know you, i think we're going to see more and more of that uh, this sort of accommodation get put into this more short-term accommodation piece as well so i think there's going to be this this convergence with that and i think that's a longer term drive with making it more accessible and also as it becomes more professionalized um i think again that will make it more accessible uh to institutional money so i, I think that those are the drivers rather than this short-term um, super boost if you like um, in demand from from the staycation market but I, th I think it's a very exciting sector and one we're going to hear a lot more about now let's switch our attention a little uh, further afield to uh, the Indian uh, disruptive uh, startup in the hotel space called Oyo or Oyo 
I'm not quite sure how you say it. Anyway, they are currently looking for a uh, $600 million refinancing loan to uh, help uh, help them get through the rest of the pandemic, um, as obviously they face quite tough times. Oyo started out in India as a kind of soft branding management platform to take on board lots of uh, India's unbranded hotels and kind of shake them out, organize them, tell them what kind of service they should be delivering to to guests and then help them market themselves online in much better ways than they're able to do on their own. Uh, so thanks to backing from that famous left field uh, investor, SoftBank, they then uh, were able to expand quite quite substantially and look at some other markets. They came over to Europe and into the UK. Uh, they went into China. But the pandemic's obviously hit very hard uh, at uh, in, in, the, in first in the overseas markets they, they went into and then now more re- recently into the core Indian market, really giving them a very tough time because obviously if you've got a revenue-based business and you've got hotels closing down or got no guests, then um, your returns, uh, sorry, your, your revenues are going to be rather substantially hit. And Oyo was one of those businesses that was seeking to grow aggressively therefore was not focused on making profits in the short term at all um but one of the things that uh, having had a closer look at, at oyo one of the interesting things they did which looked a bit kind of odd at the time was they bought into a european uh, home vacation rental business uh, and ultimately strangely that looks like that may end up being the strongest part of their portfolio over the, over the years to come yeah, I mean, I, I don't see why OEO has been hit any harder than any other hospitality business during this pandemic. I think it's more of a case of that cliche about when the tide goes out, you find out who's not wearing any underwear. Mm-hmm. And it does look a little bit like OEO doesn't have any clothes yeah. on. Um, and I think they have been exposed um, and are exposing, I suppose, um, <laughs> and in that metaphor. But uh, it, it's quite peculiar what's what's going on there. I, I don't understand why that that uh, vacation rentals business, the private home let business, whatever you want to call it, um, why that hasn't been put together with the um, OYO rooms, because it's it's. Um, instead they're running it as two separate standalone businesses so you've got oyo rooms and then you've got the um oh it's called oyovacationhomes.com mm. um it, it, it it's weird so uh even weirder is that within oyo vacation homes the brands um that were there already are remaining and they're not being branded as oyo mm. i thought the opportunity here was to have a to play the convergence between hotel accommodation and private rental accommodation and exploit the opportunity and one thing oyo has i think which expedia doesn't have with its verbo and um airbnb doesn't have um at least not hugely is um that they don't brand the properties mm. so there's you know they're on this one or two airbnb uh, properties aren't there? there's a few out there anyway but not not it's not a significant part of their portfolio and there's no verbos branded properties as such they're just websites to list the list the properties mm. on whereas oyo isn't so it made it seems that that opportunity um just doesn't seem to have been grasped by oyo um which is i find very peculiar um i mean they're going you know they're having a 
really awful time i mean and the wall street journal reported earlier this year they'd lost 90 percent of their chinese business a whole bunch of the virtually the entire management team within oeo in china jumped ship mm. um and and it was you know, a very rough rough period and, and now it's going through something similar in latin america again reported in the wall street journal so i'm not quite sure uh where they're coming out here i mean the big hope does seem to be in europe and in southeast asia that seems to be the two two regions outside of india where it's trying to push and obviously india is having a huge crisis right now is probably going to take longer to come back than europe and the us in terms of a recovery piece uh, post pandemic so i think with that core market that they're they're, they're core domestic market under stress for a significantly longer period i think they've got major challenges ahead um i'm not too sure where where they're going to go i think they need to have somebody taking control um, and actually having a, a thought through strategy that doesn't seem to be the style of the company um what i've seen so far well but maybe this uh, this scandinavian investor may get make his uh, his presence felt at the boardroom table yeah well possibly i don't yeah, the, the trouble is i don't know how much leverage they that they, they will mm. have um in that i mean i think soft soft bank is still largely calling the shots and it's it's a, a founder run company essentially um and i'm i'm, I'm not ju- i'm just not sure the sort of grip i whatever criticism you you might make of airbnb under brian chesky a ceo um and the other two founders they have a clear strategic direction mm. um I, I don't understand what the strategic direction <laughs> at oyo is and, no, right. um they seem to be they seem to be shifting all the time so um yeah i'm and, and unless they discover a strategic direction that makes some sort of sense i think they're gonna um have more problems mm-hmm. Okay, well now let's talk about what's going on in the uh, investment space uh, in hotels in Europe where it feels to us like perhaps things are starting to gather a little bit of pace. Um, This despite uh, the first quarter figures from the agents uh, suggesting that uh, volumes were down nearly 50% year on year uh, across Europe. Um, since then there's there's a few more things going on. Um, the, The big project horizon portfolio deal uh, where Cerberus selling up a range of IHG branded properties that got over the line in the UK um, and got union investment and uh, also in Europe we've got ECE jumping back into the market and making some fairly sizable acquisitions having perhaps sat on the sidelines uh, for a few months and those again are just indicators that uh, the things seem to be starting to move again in the investment space. But uh, as we've reported uh, over the last recent month, still issues uh, around uh, getting cheap money. If you are wanting to buy a hotel, uh, frankly, the banks are still sitting on their hands and you won't get a, a cheap low-rate low loan from the, the traditional big lenders. Um, that means that uh, if you've got a leveraged acquisition strategy, you're probably stuck a bit at the moment. Um, but uh, Christie & Co, the the, uh, the agents tell us that uh, they've had a very busy uh, start to this year, uh, particularly at the sort of private end of the market where there's lots and lots of deals happening. Um, very often those don't involve lending. They're uh, asset-rich or individuals who can afford, have got funds to uh, spend and believe uh, the medium to long term 
the market uh, they're investing in will deliver. Yeah, I think this is a tale which we've we've told um, numerous times, um, where you're not going to be getting bargains, but you are going to be getting opportunities you wouldn't normally get. Um, the reason you're not getting bargains, we're at near zero or sometimes even negative interest rates. It, it's very difficult to see them changing significantly in the near term. Um, we're also got the strongest growth in most economies since the Second World War in in that sort of environment. Um, plus, uh, uh, the the biggest wall of money the industry's ever had in terms of buyers out there. Um, those three things, I think, mean that um, it, it's very difficult to see prices significantly coming off. I think the only exceptions are going to be um, for assets which for whatever reason haven't got a great future ahead of them say maybe a, a regional conference hotel um, or assets which are in sectors which are perceived as being very high risk um, um, so I, I don't th you know th they may may sell um, for a bargain as well or a relative bargain um, I think if you want to get all philosophical Go about on. it, Chris, it. Um, I would I, I would turn to the French philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville. Now he reflected on the French Revolution and what, what, what when it began, and he said, "Well, actually, it wasn't when you know, the people were at their lowest ebb when things were particularly bad. The revolution actually started as things." got better uh, people felt able to then get up and say look enough we what we want we don't want this to continue anymore um, and I think there's an element of you know how this will impact in terms of the trading and in um, in terms of the assets being sold as uh, uh, trading gets better as the recovery kicks in and people are quite clear on that you know how things are coming mm. back um people are going to feel more confident about getting out into the market making the purchases um and we we will see a lot more activity then and i think we're going to see um quite a lot of action actually because we, we've got a situation where actually these balance sheets which are there have been shattered um to a point where they've never been sh shattered as badly before um we've had by far the worst downturn the sector's ever seen um and there's a huge amount of capital needs to be put into these balance sheets now either the owners are going to be able to uh find that from their own resources or they're going to have to trade their asset as the um, banks start saying look you've got to make good this problem we've got with 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 the capital structure so if it's held by a listed company if it's held by a uh, corporate with um, good access to, to other capital say a private equity backer or something like this then you know I, I suspect what we'll see is that money coming in and shoring it up however where there isn't availability like that as you've already mentioned Chris the traditional sources of, of, of debt finance aren't just mm. not there um, and, and the, the already stressed balance sheets they're not going to you know <laughs> a bank is not going to be lending in any case to these borrowers because they're, they're too stressed out so the only exit really is a sale um i mean the good news is that you know they'll get a mm. decent price the, the, the obviously the bad news is that they're going to be forced to make that sale um i think we're going to see a, a lot of activity in the next couple of years um a lot of action as as these as people 
actually begin to sort out the mess that is the balance sheets across the hospitality there sector. There you go, you heard it here first. Right now, this week, we are going to wrap up our No Star and Five Star Awards by uh, linking the two together and remembering um, Anders Nissen, the CEO of Pandox, uh, who we heard this uh, last weekend, had uh, died after a short illness. as a shock to us all. Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, Anders is is something of a um, an icon in the industry. It's a over uh, used term, but in his cases, it, it's it it is well deserved. Um, he is a he, he has been a huge figure in the industry. I mean, what was great about him, he had he he was so opinionated and he was mm. not frightened of sharing those opinions um that was great for us as journalists and we were able to chat with him you know both for for our articles and to have him at our conferences um he, he was a fantastic contributor and and what what i think made him quite special was not only were his opinions linked directly to his company but he also had a passion um for the wider industry too and you know he spoke from the heart and he he spoke about the, the wider industry as much as he spoke about his own company and you know he had very um, passionately held views about what was good for the wider industry um and I, I, I think it's this generosity of spirit which we're, we're going to miss so hugely. And, of course, the industry um, will miss his, his, his truly inspirational leadership style he had. Um, he'll be very yeah, much and missed. and I'll certainly miss uh, a character who you could very often just get hold of by phoning his mobile phone number, which was freely available. Um, and if he was busy, he'd get back to you later. But very often you could simply phone him up and have a word with him, which I think for a CEO is all too rare and quite remarkable. There you go. There you go. We'll miss Indeed. you, Anders. And on that note, we'll say goodbye for now. <laughs>